I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi everyone, I'm so pleased to introduce you to the amazing and talented Nell Diamond. Welcome! I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so this is episode 12 of Beauty Bosses and for episode 12 we have this exquisite and extremely brilliant um, entrepreneur. You probably know that Nell is the founder and CEO of Hill House Home which is a revolutionary concept in the idea of bedding. Um, Nell grew up all over the world, especially in London and Tokyo, and later in life in New York. Um, so she's an international woman of mystery. <laughs> and in her very short but illustrious career in the past two years at Hill House Home, you've already made it to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Yes. <laughs> so that is awesome. Okay, let's rewind and learn a little bit more about how you started. What was your aha moment for deciding that you wanted to go into bedding? So I've always, as you mentioned, I've moved a lot my whole life. So I was born in London and then we were in Tokyo and then back to London and throughout that entire time period we always would move neighborhoods. My mom loves to move. <laughs> um, and we were moving for my dad's job but then when we would stay put my mom would be like, let's go somewhere else. Um, and I had two brothers, and my bedroom was always incredibly important to me. It was my little sanctuary. It was the place where I could really let my freak flag fly and just kind of go crazy. Now, for middle school Nell, that meant that I had feathers everywhere, like feather boas that I would tie to my bed frame, and there was just like glitter explosions and crazy, crazy colorful things. Unfortunately, not well, fortunately, but also fortunately, I'm married now. I'm, I'm going to be less acceptable, less acceptable in your home. 29 years old, I have a child, I can't put glitter everywhere except for my eyes, which is fine. Um, so I've always been obsessed with this idea of the bedroom as a sanctuary. Um, and then when I went to college, you know, I lived in dorm rooms all four years. Uh, I went to Princeton undergrad, and you kind of you stay on campus. And uh, that, again, it was really, really important to me. And I moved to New York. I started working at a Wall Street bank in their sales and trading analyst program, working kind of crazy hours. And again, even more so, my bedroom was the place that I came to kind of recover after a long day at work and really feel safe and feel, feel like myself again. Um, and I would shop for my home and try and find things in my budget, but I couldn't find really beautiful products that kind of spoke to my design aesthetic, but also my budget at the same time. And I became obsessed with this idea that there isn't a home brand the same way that there's a fashion and a beauty and a tech brand for this specific kind of age group, which for totally. us is like, you yeah. know, now it's 25 to 34, I think you'd call it, you know, an older millennial. Um, so a mature, a mature millennial. So for what, for for me, that meant that you know, really simple customer service things like free shipping and returns always, and an easy to use website paired with really intricate, beautiful embroidery and great color palette. So I felt like you could either choose between one or the other. You could have the really beautiful stuff, or you could have the great customer service. And I wanted to really combine those two things and kind of become the next great home brand. 
So with that in mind, I was, you know, sitting at my desk at 5 a.m. on the trading floor in my, like, ill-fitting Ann Taylor suit, just, like, not knowing who I was. <laughs> and I applied to business school. So um, the school I went to, I went to Yale School of Management, and it's a really entrepreneurial business school, a very small class. And I got in when I was, I guess, 25 and uh, decided to join the entrepreneurial program there and kind of incubate the business. I'm not a very... Uh, Risk. I'm not a big risk taker, which is shocking for an entrepreneur, uh, but I needed a lot of you know data behind me before I could actually take the risk and start the business, so Yale really helped me with that. Okay, good. Yeah. So did you have an inkling when you were working in finance before you started business school at Yale that maybe that wasn't going to be your ultimate destination? Yeah, you know, I think you, you when you're growing up, or at least when I was growing up, you're so focused on kind of this idea of a path. And so yeah. I was desperate for a path. I, my entire high school, I was focused on where I was going to college. I was focused on getting the grades to get into college, writing the college essay, doing the SATs. And that was so clear to me. And then when I was at college, it was all about getting a job. Um, and so, you know, the job that I ended up getting, I got the internship when I was a junior. And I had a great before you really know who you are. I knew who I was. Yeah. I was so young. I was twenty, um, and then I got the job offer. So it became really easy for me to just say, okay, I just have to work, put my head down, work really hard, and I either get it or I don't. And I kept getting it, and I kept getting, and I was sitting at my desk in my job, thinking, but is this what I really want? I keep just working hard to get something, but I'm not really sure if that's what's making me happy. And I think that was an important realization for me. Um, so I think while I was sitting there, you know, I really loved the company I worked for. I loved all the people I worked with, but I knew that there there was more, and I knew that there was uh, there were other things I was interested in. Okay, so yeah. then here you are, a little bit after you have this moment of mm -hmm. epiphany that you need to go incubate some yeah. brilliant ideas, <laughs> and you're at Yale, um, and. In the background, we have this context of you feeling like the bedroom is a sacred space and a bit of a sanctuary from the chaos of real life. Um, how did the entrepreneurial program at Yale Business School or School of Management help you kind of bring those two things together? You know, it's funny because SOM is known for its entrepreneurial program, as I, as I mentioned, but not in the same way that a business school like Stanford's entrepreneurial program is known. Mm -hmm. SOM, because of course you know they have the incredible medical school and all of these other great graduate yeah. schools, it's known for entrepreneurship paired with other graduate schools. So the students that I sat alongside in the incubator were doing things like figuring out how to transport organs in a more efficient way and how to build robots that can help a supply chain. And I was like, no, I just love pillows. Like, they are gorgeous. And I actually think that was really great for me because there are certain truths across any business. You know, yeah. your business, my business, um, there are certain things that are, are universal. And I think it's a really humbling thing to be surrounded by super intelligent people and then also to be surrounded by people who are going through the same process as you. So we all had to set up tax IDs. We all had to have a business model. And so that was really helpful for me. And just having also the time and the space to say, what are my goals? How do I get there? How do I, you know, build this thing? Yeah. That's really great. That's really great because sometimes you hear entrepreneurial stories and I don't, you know, I don't think there's any right way to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. There are a million different ways to be an entrepreneur, but sometimes you hear stories about people who um, 
almost fall right into something. Oh, I did not fall. But then <laughs> you hear stories like, no, I love your story because it resonates so much with my personality type. I'm such a planner too. Yeah. And I love that you like really did your homework and research and made a list and it's how there are lists and there were Excel. It's funny because I just read the New York Times article about Beyonce's Coachella performance. Yeah. And my Coachella. I just literally sobbed the entire time watching that. Um, but anyway, so in the New York Times article, one of the things that the author says is what you can always expect. While, while a lot of artists, musical artists, will kind of want to be seen as like, oh, I just threw this together and I just, you know, I'm naturally this performer and whatever, Beyonce wants to, you to see how hard she works. And she's physically sweating, and it is, you know, there is a marching band behind her, and she is singing the Black National Anthem, and she is like this incredible, you know, force of nature that has prepared for a very long time. And I think, you know, sort of similar, she's, she's really saying, this is how hard I worked, and this is what came from it. And another artist might not need that. So I think what you said about, like, each entrepreneur has a different way of doing it. My way is definitely the Beyonce way. <laughs> so, and that's why you're the Beyonce of betting. I can't believe so. I just compared myself to Beyonce with a straight face. Yeah, um, Nell Diamond, the Beyonce yes. of betting. Um, <laughs> let it ring through the mountains. Yes, exactly. Um, so now after you graduated Yale, you had to build this company. Um, first of all, for those of you who haven't been to Yale campus, that's my alma mater from undergrad too. Yay, Yale, go Bulldogs. Um, <laughs> tell us what Hill House Avenue is, and does is that the inspiration for the name Hill House Home? So Hill House Avenue is this insanely gorgeous tree-lined street in New Haven, so, Connecticut. Like the prettiest street ever. Yes, it is beyond gorgeous, and it's this street where the School of Management, the old building, the original building, um, has been for kind of forever. Um, and while I was at Yale, it actually moved, but so that street is just so beautiful. So while I was at Yale coming up with this idea and thinking through what I wanted to create, I was sitting on Hill House Avenue. And Hill House is also the name of the school that my little brother, or my older brother went to in London. Um, and I felt like it was this weird bookend situation yeah. where Hill House had been, you know, this super British, adorable little school where everyone wears knickers. And um, I would walk my older brother to school and just be like obsessed with him. And then there I was at business school sitting on Hill House Avenue. Um, so it really felt like two bookends in my life. And, and that's kind of where the name came from. And also I just love alliteration. Hill House Home, three H's. I know, how can you argue like with that? Yeah, <laughs> just fell. They look like little heads, <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, so yeah. Okay, so you really thought this through. Okay. Um, when you when you graduated and you had your business kind of official and up and running, you know you were just starting out. The concept of a home decor focused business that hit all of these different criteria of a fairly price price point, quality, luxury, a little bit of whimsy. That was kind of a new space that you were carving out. Um, but how did you go from being right out of business school and not really having world, real world experience in this area to, you know, fast forward two years later, you're Forbes 30 under 30, you've shipped to over 20 countries worldwide, you have an international supply chain coming from France and Italy and all over the place. You know, how did you get from A to B? Um, you know, I think with a lot a lot of work and a lot of support from other people. I think one of the most humbling uh, things that I kind of figured out in the first few months and, and 
weeks of the company, even days maybe, was that I couldn't do this alone and that I had to ask a lot of questions and I had to ask for a lot of support. Um, and that can be hard, you know, that's not something I'm naturally very good at, kind of asking for help. I like to think I can do it all myself, but immediately I figured out that wasn't true. So I think um, by, you know, leaning on other people for everything from something as simple as, you know, how do I figure out how to account for inventory in my QuickBooks to, you know, what's the best strategy when you're thinking about opening your first store? What are the metrics I should care about? Just asking as many people, as many experts as I possibly could um, was definitely the smartest thing that I think um, I figured out how to, how to do. Because there's no way you can be an expert in everything. No. Um, and I'm definitely not. And I'm also, I know enough about myself to know that as I mentioned before, I don't love taking kind of huge risks. So I had, I think a way to calm myself was to ask for a lot of opinions and advice um, on the road. I like that. I mean, I feel like, you know, half the battle is knowing where you require help. Yeah, and knowing what you're good at. Like, I think that that's really been powerful for me um, because again, you know, uh, being someone who was very type A in high school and college, I wanted to think I was good at everything, but, that is just the opposite. <laughs> I just know, I know I'm not good at a lot of things and I know I'm good at a few things and kind of being able to fill in those gaps is really important. So the statistics for businesses, like brand new businesses, are very abysmal as anyone yeah. who has tried to start a business knows. Mm -hmm. And most of them fail and most of them go bankrupt. But you're kind of known for inventive and clever collaborations and marketing strategies. So could you tell us a little bit about a few really cool ways that you put your products into the world? Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, marketing is, is, is one of the things that I love the most about the business. I think um, it definitely brings me a lot of joy and it's just a really fun kind of thing to think about. So partnerships have been huge for us and I think the first way that I thought about partnerships was just let's partner with brands who I think are doing interesting things. Like that simple baseline assumption. Like are they doing something that I find cool as a consumer? Um, and then figuring out how we can partner together. And sometimes that means just saying like, let's do an email giveaway together. And sometimes it means let's design a product together. So like one of my best friends, Prabhul Garang, fashion designer, um, I've known him since uh, I was in college and he's really grown to be one of my best friends in the world. Um, we were able to collaborate together on something really special. Uh, a tabletop collection where we actually used um, lines from Christina Rossetti's poetry on all of the placemats. Oh my god, how um, awesome! It was so fun, and you know, Preble, everything that Preble does is so, so incredible. Is it beautiful? Designs, even more yeah. than just the design, you know, he is laser focused on figuring out how to make a world that's more um, inclusive. And he cares so deeply. He was raised by the most incredible mother, and he cares so deeply about uh, feminism and women's rights. And so, being able to incorporate the poetry of, of such an iconic woman um, was really amazing and fun. So that was that was something that was great for marketing, obviously. But you know, it was authentic. So I think that that's been a nice guiding light for me is not to do things just because you know it's good for marketing, but also if it has that authenticity of is this someone who I you know, deeply respect? Is this someone whose work I love? Is there a reason for us to do it? As opposed to just like doing it. <laughs> yeah, which I think is so important because it kind of shines on your brand too. And oh, when yeah. you do something authentic, then you put more of your heart into it. Exactly. Other people can tell. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, and you love poetry, I know, because oh, yeah. you were an English major in college, right? I was an English major, I know you were too. I was too, <laughs> yay. Love books. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I was an English major and I find it comes out in the funniest ways, like my Instagram captions. Like sometimes the girls that work with me will be like, now you gotta tone that down a little bit. They're like, no, I know what you're saying. What is it, like Chaucer or what are you No, I'm just like weird verbiage and like just like a little, I'm just like a little too extra. They're like, just tone it down. It's Instagram, like you can chill for a second or like trying to put some weird like quote in there. Um, but books for me are such an important part of my life and um, that means trashy books too. Like I, I am, you know, no judgment on that sphere. I like, you know, John Milton just as much as I like like really, really trashy books that I don't even know the author's names for. <laughs> so yeah. That was a missed plugging opportunity. I know. <laughs> Next time. Um, so since you like all different kinds of literature, what did you write about for your thesis in college? So I wrote my thesis. My thesis was probably the, the most exciting thing that I did all throughout college, except for some really fabulous sorority costume parties. Um, I wrote my thesis on hair. Um, so the way that I kind of tied that thread together, it was 120 pages and I wrote it based on a line in Paradise Lost where it's telling the tale of Eve falling in the Garden of Eden. And the description of her falling and the fall of mankind is she falls with tresses all disordered. So like her hair was a mess when she kneeled down at Adam and said, you know, I just, <laughs> original sin, here it is. Um, and so I became obsessed with that line. Like, why is her hair mentioned in that sentence? What does that mean? And I began seeing hair in all these other places. So one of the places where you see it all the time is in Victorian art and poetry and literature. You'll see, like, if you think of the pre-Raphaelite women, they all have really crazy hair that kind of like is huge and curly and it like takes on a life of its own and then you think of mythology you think of medusa snake hair that right. quite literally has the power to stop man in its tracks um and i just started sitting there and thinking like what is up with hair what is this thing it's at once this incredible beauty and it's such a symbol of fertility and femininity, just like femininity and, and sensuality and all of these things and then it kills guys. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so sometimes it kills you, and sometimes it's the most beautiful thing ever. So I wanted to trace this idea of hair as what a woman is. So simultaneously, you know, vulnerable and beautiful and sensual and petrifying. And I tied that all up in the Victorian male's fear of women. Because of course, you know, the Victorian era is when everything starts changing and women start, you know, working, women start thinking of themselves outside of the home, they start preparing for, for what we see now, which is, um, you know, incredible women with their, their own in, insane practice. <laughs> are we Park Avenue? Where are we? Park Avenue, yeah. Um, so I think that that was really, really fun to kind of tear through those, those women. Sylvia Plath, um, Christina Rossetti was huge. Um, and then, and, and everywhere, I even went up to Disney's Tangled, which was really fun. Oh, how cool. You so really like, brought it full circle. Yeah, the, the okay. modern Rapunzel, um, and, and like the bobbed hair of the 1920s and what that meant. Like right when women are, are kind of getting huge political clout, they're all chopping off their hair. And what does that mean? And then yeah, the, the other career chop and career then chop, the mom chop. The mom and, chop. And then of course all the religious stuff. So nuns who have to cover their hair and, you know, Orthodox Jewish women with wigs. And it's, there's so much in hair. I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> and for those of you who are listening yeah. on iTunes and rather than watching this video footage, Nell has beautiful, extremely long, thick, lustrous brown hair. 
Um, and it's kind of one of your calling card features, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I think I became obsessed with pre-raphaelites because I'm also very pale, and when I would go to museums growing up, I would see myself, and I would say, like, oh my gosh, that's, that's like, you know, I was surrounded by these tan, like, short-haired, blonde girls, and I would be like, where am I? And then I'd go to the museum and see, like, a Titian painting and be like, oh, she's a little bigger, she's pale, she's got a lot of red hair. Um, so yeah, it's funny. <laughs> um, so I, and I love, I love how you always wear your hair long. Like I like long hair too. Yeah, and yours is very I, long. I feel, well, it's not Nell Diamond length <laughs> yet, but, um, I think that hair is so much part of feminine identity. Mm -hmm. Um, it depends who you are and of course you can be any kind of woman you want to be. Yeah. But, um, but I love it. Yeah, it's so fun that you wrote about it yeah. and made that into a, an academic thesis. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about um, business. So you were talking about some collaborations, some marketing strategies, and things like that. Um, did anyone discourage you from starting your own business? You know, probably, but I tend to have kind of blinders with that stuff, um, so I wasn't listening if they were. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, when I was, after I launched the business, I kept it kind of close to my heart before we fully launched, so only like super trusted people who weren't going to tell me like don't do this unless it was, you know, really a, a, a crazy, crazy risk. Um, after I launched, I began to meet with people, whether it's, you know, like venture capital investors and we haven't taken on any outside investment yet, that type of person or people who, um, you know, I don't know very well. I definitely had people just be like, you know, put me down. I found out I was pregnant a month after I launched the business and I remember going to a meeting with like a, someone, an investor who, um, you know, I'm obviously not going to name and I remember them just being like, oh, well, you're not going to do anything once you have the baby. And I'm like, what? Like, that's just such a weird thing to say. And then I actually got into, I got into an incubator program right after we launched. And I remember it so specifically. I had crazy, crazy morning all day sickness, like throwing up into a bucket, typing on my computer, throwing up into a bucket, like just really, really a low point of the business and my pregnancy. And I got into this incubator program where one of the perks was you go to San Francisco and you pitch people. And I remember calling the person who ran the program and saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not allowed to get on a plane right now. My doctor won't let me get on a plane. And like my reason for calling was to say like, so do we Skype or do we FaceTime? Mm -hmm. Like that was why I was calling. Right. And she was like, oh, okay, well better luck next year. So they cut me out of the program because oh I couldn't get on a plane. And I remember hanging up and just being like, just sobbing and just being like, Oh my god, like thinking I had done something wrong, like I shouldn't, I should have either gotten on the plane and disobeyed my doctor or like I don't even know. Like what am I thinking, being pregnant and having a business? Like and now of course with hindsight I see how crazy that was, but there were definitely moments like that where um, I felt really discouraged and I just felt like oh gosh I'm, I've made the wrong decision or, or I've put myself in a bad position. Um, but luckily I feel like now after two years of the business and having a one-year-old, I, I just try to totally tone that stuff out to do that yeah. stuff out. Yeah, and I feel like this is such a good kind of lesson for young people listening who are thinking about wanting to have it all and how do they juggle their family with their career and things like that. And I've faced so many of these yeah, same I'm sure. types of things too. But um, 
you know, you can, like Nell, be a capable, committed, mm -hmm. accountable, responsible businesswoman and still Yeah, and I think yeah. the important thing is that you also don't have to be. You also can mm -hmm. choose not to have a business while you're pregnant or choose to work or not work. And I think the only, like, the best armor that I have against any outside opinions or any discouragement is knowing exactly what I want. And so that's what I recommend to everyone is, like, taking whatever time you need to figure out what's important to you in life, what your values are. And, you know, if you have a partner sitting with that partner and saying like, what are our top five values? Like, and then just pursuing them blindly. And then I think it becomes really easy to yeah. tune all the other stuff out. And I think since I had Henry, my son, I've had so many crazy opinions. Like you can't put the car seat that way. You can't sleep with them in your bed ever. And like all these things that are, you know, personal <laughs> it's so opinions. annoying, right? <laughs> and now I'm really good at just being like, I know it's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's really yeah. good. It liberates you a bit. Totally. Um, okay, so for those of you who don't know, um, Nell opened her first flagship store for mm -hmm. Hill House Home. It's in the West Village. Um, it's currently bedecked with about a million beautiful flowers, <laughs> and it's become a little bit of a tourist sightseeing sensation um, on Bleecker Street. But um, tell us what it's like if you're walking into Hill House Home for the first time. Sort of take us through a visual of what we'll see. Yeah, so we set it up. It's a really small space on Bleecker Street in the West Village next to Magnolia Bakery, so an iconic little block. Um, and we set it up as an apartment. So there's a bed, a, a fireplace, um, a dream apartment, <laughs> um, a little closet area, a seating area. We really wanted people to imagine when they came in the store and just sort of like be inspired by the idea of creating a, a space that they absolutely loved. Um, and it's very, very extra. It's like crazy fabric upholstery on the walls and um, all sorts of patterns and stripes and bright things. And there are some quotes all over from kind of some of our favorite authors. That's that English major of me getting out. Um, and it's really fun. So we try and change up the bed as much as possible to show all the ways that you can combine your bedding to kind of mix and match and have fun. And then we have other products. So we have our pajamas in there. Um, and then we have uh, some, some really cool vases that a friend of mine made for flowers and bath salts and essential oils and just lots of really kind of cool, fun things in there, lots of good gifts. So it's been really fun. That's amazing. What are your top you know, couple of products, like the most popular things. So we have these little mini pillows. So they're 12 by 16. They're pretty small. They're like a baby pillow. Um, and you can monogram those with anything, your name, a phrase, um, song lyrics. And those are really popular. Uh, and then we, you can do the same on our pillowcases. So we have these pillowcase sets that start at $105. And uh, you can monogram everything. Like one of our most popular monograms is My Side, Your Side, which is really cute. Um, and then people do like, it was all a dream. Um, people get really creative. Five more minutes has been really popular. Oh, so people cute. really, they kind of go all out. They're not just getting their initials. They're getting, you know, funny kind of What's the pieces. craziest thing someone's monogram? Oh my gosh. We, okay, well, two things. So it changes like every week because people are so creative. So one person, um, I guess they had like had, they have a company in San Francisco and they had raised a fund. And so they said Series A funded, which I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that's just so funny to get that monogrammed on your pillowcases. And then someone- It's a big accomplishment. It's a big accomplishment. <laughs> I'm like, more power to you, but like how funny. Um, and then someone else got, 
just recently, a few weeks ago, had a gender reveal to themselves. So their doctor called us. Oh. And we monogrammed baby girl because she was having a baby girl. So we were all sitting in our office like, we know that this person is having a girl and she does not know. And we were all just like, what do we do? It was so crazy. Um, people really trust us, I guess. Yeah, that's so cute. Yeah, it was really adorable. I have to figure out what to get on my monogram. Yeah, That's my next project. Yes. After the podcast, yes. I'm going to brainstorm. If, you, if anyone who's listening has... Beauty sleep. Something about beauty. Yeah, that's a good so idea. Something about beauty. Oh, yeah. Something yeah. about beauty. Okay. <laughs> Anyone with ideas, message me yeah. for my um, bespoke pillow. Um, and your pajamas are really popular, too, though, right? Yeah. Pajamas okay. are really popular, too. And they're cute. They're, like, easy. They're cotton, but they're easy iron, so you can throw them in the wash and, and don't need to iron them or anything. Okay. Um, can you explain what we should be looking for in proper bedding? Yeah, so you're looking for, well, I think this is true about any kind of consumer-facing product in the world, including, you know, uh, your doctor. I think you need to look for authenticity first, um, whether you're shopping for jeans or pillows or whatever. Um, look for a brand that, that kind of speaks to you and that you feel like is telling an authentic story. And then with sheets in particular, um, you want to look for origin, so you want to know where it's made. All of our bedding is made in France and Italy, um, the majority in Italy. Um, and they're kind of the, the ultimate source when it comes to super high quality bedding. They've they do it. everything well. They do everything well. well. They've been doing it for centuries. The clothes, yep. <laughs> the art, they've got it. Um, so you want to know that, and then you want to know the cotton in particular. So people always talk about thread count. Yeah, what's the deal with thread count? Tell us. Because I read something that you said that I, and my jaw dropped. It's fake. Frankly. <laughs> yeah, so the thread count is not a big deal. Yeah, so okay, thread count. Thread count is a uh, uh, something that you should care about only if you are a textile expert who has been dealing with bedding <laughs> and textiles for decades. Unless you are that expert, thread count doesn't matter to you. And I say that because it makes sense as part of a wider picture, but on its own, just saying 600 thread count means nothing. You could have a 600 thread count set of sheets that are like the worst thing you've ever slept on, or you could have 600 thread count sheets that are the best thing you've ever slept on. Um, and, and that's because thread count is just a measure of the number of threads in a square inch of fabric. So there are lots of other things that matter when it comes to softness, durability, um, how something feels, and thread count is not the only thing that matters. So the other things that matter are, as I just mentioned, the origin, uh, the fiber itself, so like Supima cotton and Egyptian cotton are both really good. Um, and then the, the actual length of the fiber, so long staple cotton, uh, really is important in bedding because if you think of like long staples, essentially how, how long the, the actual fiber is that goes into the cotton, and uh, the shorter the staple, the more likely it is to fray and pill and get that kind of like uncomfortable scratchy texture on a sheet. So lots of things matter um, in concert with each other. Thread count on its own just doesn't mean a thing. And if you go into Bed Bath & Beyond, you can see like thousand thread count sheets and they're horrible. Horrible. <laughs> um, but good thousand thread count sheets can be nice. Yeah, I feel like that's so interesting. And maybe the reason people have become so obsessed with thread count is that like in any industry, you kind of want something to hang your hat yeah, on. Yeah, you just want to cling to something. And so you, fe you can feel like a micro expert in something if you just like 
know that one key term. But also, you know, betting is not, it's not the most interesting industry in the world to a lot of people. And so a lot of the betting companies that have come before us, it's, you know, they, it's not people, consumers aren't doing it because they're stupid. They're doing it because these betting companies have told them to. These betting companies have said, look, you probably don't care about my product. I'm going to throw a number at you that gets bigger, the better it is. Like, trust me. And that's just not true. And to me, that's like so unfair to the consumer. It's, you know, the marketing tactics of betting companies that, you know, don't actually have anything to do with the quality of their betting, so. Okay, I feel, yeah. like, I feel like that's revolutionary, so yeah. next time you guys are looking for betting, just think about the big picture. Of big picture, the yeah, origin, exactly. The quality, mm -hmm. right? Okay, cool. Um, now, I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about some of your favorite pieces from your own collection and how you reflect those in your own home. Like what does your bedroom look like and how, how does how, how does your store get reflected in your bedroom? Well, I keep joking to my husband that my store looks like what my bedroom would be if I weren't married. So <laughs> like crazy. Um, but my own bedroom is really, it's really meditative actually. It's, um, we definitely have wallpaper, but it's kind of a, a meditative, like pale purplish color, which I don't tell my husband is purple. I say it's like gray or something. He's like, cool. <laughs> um, and I, I have a canopy bed, which I love so much and I have wanted my entire life and I'm so happy. We just moved this year and I'm so excited to get a canopy bed. Um, I feel and, like that's every little girl's dream, uh, right? I had one when I was little, little, Yeah. after age eight. I stopped having one. I'm so happy to have it back in my life. I literally feel like I am like the king of the world. Every night, the queen, I guess, when I go to bed. Um, so I have a canopy bed, and I, I kind of designed my bedroom so that it, it, it's easy to keep clean. So, like, for example, my biggest tip for people when they're thinking about their bedroom is to make sure you have a bedside table with a drawer. And that's a lot harder to do than you would think. Like, most bedside tables do not have drawers for some reason. And that's because... I know the way that I live. I know I have five million things that I want next to my bed and I urgently must have my like, you know, whatever, cream and lip stuff and books and all this stuff next to me at all times. But I also don't want to look at that. I don't want it all like my tissues to be out. So you just need somewhere to throw your stuff. And I think that um, that is a really important tip for me. Mm -hmm. And then my own products, um, I have a mix and I kind of mix and match. So I have right now, I have our Dover collection in lavender, which is like a really, really pale purple um, border on white pillowcases. And then I also have our Waverly, which is a little bit of a scallop, so it looks kind of like a wave, um, in our powder blue. And it's a really kind of fun color combination. All of our bedding is like the base is white with just a little bit of pop of color. Um, and it's, it's a really fun combination and I like it a lot. I, I mix it up obviously because it's what I do for a living. And then we have little monograms. So I have um, my name and my husband's name, which is Teddy. And then we have our son's name on a little mini pillow too on our bed. Um, so it's really cute. I love my bedroom. <laughs> That's good. I feel like in this day and age, it's so hard to unplug. And, yeah. you know, Especially in New York City, don't you think we're in this culture of total sleeplessness and mm -hmm. everyone's a workaholic, we all bring our devices into the bedroom, we're all like up half the night on our phones and yeah. things like that. How do you preserve the sanctity of sleep? So Ariana Huffington, I think, is the biggest genius in the world speaking about sleep and she's, you know, made it her career now to, to really educate people on, on how to live, kind of, she calls it, um, I guess, uh, it's she calls it the sleep revolution, but it's like providing a sanitary sleep environment. 
So when I first started the business, I was lucky enough to speak to her and show her my product and kind of get advice from her. And she told me some of the craziest stuff that I've never forgotten. The first is that um, driving while sleep deprived is like driving drunk. And they've done numerous tests about this and they've seen how our brain responds to lack of sleep. And it's truly dangerous. It's not just unhealthy, it's dangerous. And I, I really, really believe that. And I think that that was kind of shocking for me to hear, especially because, you know, working in finance and then in college, before that, I was surrounded by, um, I think, this mentality of like, you know, work hard, play hard, and sleep is the last thing on the list. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't working for me. I was not happy when I was sleeping kind of less than, you know, seven-ish hours a night. And I don't think it's the same for everyone. I don't think everyone has that same kind of hour that they need. But I know for me, if I get less than seven hours of sleep a night, I'm really, really putting my health at risk, and I'm also putting the efficiency of my day at risk. So I hold myself accountable. I have a Fitbit, which I love, um, that tracks my sleep. Nice. Um, I make sure that I, you know, definitely last week I got a few, uh, two nights under seven hours, and so I had to make up for that the next nights. Um, and I really try and not have my phone right before bed. I think the blue light um, can definitely kind of interfere with your melatonin production from what I've heard and also from my own experience. And then I've been really good about a bedtime routine. So just sticking to 20 minutes before bed of doing something repetitive so that my body gets that kind of Pavlovian response and, and like just sleepiness like, and yeah, readiness. It does the work for me a little bit. Um, Cause especially after having a baby, I remember like those first few weeks I was sitting up in bed, panicking about not getting to sleep, but not getting to sleep. And it's like this cycle. And so I try to avoid that now. Okay, I really like that. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, in 2018, it's kind of the era of e-commerce. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how in-store sales versus electronic sales impact your business. And maybe you can tie that into the bigger picture of also e-commerce on the internet versus on social media. Yeah, so I think that um, I'm obsessed with seeing how kind of the best companies in the business do this. So like, for example, Warby Parker has like the most genius omni-channel strategy ever. So like they have the, the e-commerce and the stores and they complement each other and they fit in this neat little package that at the end of the day is really good for consumers and really good for the business. And so I think the e-commerce e companies that are going to, or the companies in general that are gonna win over the next five to 10 years are the ones that can figure out how those two things fit together seamlessly. Um, and I think the key, at least for us, and you know, it's only been three months of having a store, has been offering a different value proposition online and in store, but then still having a seamless customer experience. Um, and we think about that like the store is a touch point, our Instagram is a touch point, our site is a touch point, our packaging is a touch point. So like anywhere that a customer might see us and see our branding, we want to be consistent. Um, but at the same time, we want them all to offer something slightly unique and different to customers. Um, you know, when I think about people getting out of their beds or leaving their office and coming into my store, I want to reward them for that because it's, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. You can do everything online right. on your phone. And it's kind of a big deal to get someone to totally make time in their busy day to yeah. be present in the store. So I really feel like I want to reward people for coming in by giving them something extra. And so that's led us to A, set up the store differently than I think you know a traditional retailer would, which is as an apartment so that they can really get inspired and imagine themselves in that space. 
and B, by offering like a real sense of community. So we have events in our store where we bring you know, a speaker in or a, a business leader in or something different that you can't get online that you need to be face to face. And then we have appointments in store so someone can come in and say, you know, here's a picture of my bedroom, like what on earth do I do? And we can help walk them through that process. So we, we focus in the store on things that just absolutely cannot happen online. Um, but then, of course, we still offer everything that happens online in the store. So I don't think we have it right by any means, but we're really committed to uh, using it as a knowing that we're not right necessarily and using the store as a way to let our customers tell us what they want. And it's sort of like a data collection of saying, you know, what's the best, how can we be the best company for you? And, and with the end goal of making people happier in their homes. And I think that's been definitely like a nice thread to tie us through. That's so interesting, yeah, because you don't want to drag yourself out of bed and all the way, you know, into a store and then feel like you're walking into a website, right? What a waste. It would what be a waste. pointless. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's really interesting. Okay, amazing. Well, um, since this is Beauty Bosses, mm -hmm. we wanted to gift you a product from oh, my so skin and line. So <laughs> if there's anything that kind of strikes your fancy, you know, let me know. I'm dying for the lash. Yes. Okay. It's a really good product. Okay, so good. we're, we're going to give you, um, so uh, as a little thank you for your time. Yeah. Sarah um, Hoover gave me the lip plump and it's amazing. I love oh, it so good. much. Yeah. I'm so glad you it's like it. <laughs> I'm really glad you like yeah. it. And then you can have beautiful pre-Raphaelite long, Perfect. long eyelashes. Unfortunately, it's the one area of my body that like I'm not super like long haired. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll help you change that. We'll help you change that. Okay, amazing. And then I wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about different aspects of beauty in terms of home decor and bedding and, you know, home furnishings and beautiful hair and pre-Raphaelites and what does beauty mean to you? Such a good question. I think beauty to me, I like this idea of tying like joy and beauty together. So um, beauty is sort of like this idea, beauty is really like seeing happiness in someone else. Um, I always think like the most beautiful people are the people that are um, that joy and that happiness kind of like comes out of them. So I think that's that's definitely what beauty is for me. Um, but I think more importantly, beauty is really in the eye of the beholder. I hate to be so cliche, but um, the cliches really yeah, produce because they gesture <laughs> toward the truth, right? Yeah, I think like one of the things even in this conversation that I think like we keep coming back to is this idea that like it's different for everyone yeah. in entrepreneurship and in um, in everything that we do, um, and I think that that is. That is definitely true in beauty too, um, and I think that's that's a really kind of optimistic way to see it too. That like you can find beauty in everything because you know there are different eyes on everything. Okay, I yeah. think that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what does it mean to you to be a boss? That's a really good question. I think I don't know because we're definitely in a culture of everyone calling themselves a boss, <laughs> and some days I'm like. Please, somebody else be the boss. I can't be the boss. And also, but... is it like boss in the in the zeitgeisty pop cultural sense, yeah. or is it boss in the sense that the bills have your name on them and you're paying? That's, yeah, that's what. Car <laughs> did you see Cardi B say that? Oh, oh my no, god! I didn't, what did she say? She, she had the. I love her. Me, I love her so much. She had the funniest Instagram video where she was like, "You won't need to stop calling yourself boss." You are the boss if your name is on the bill. And she's like, I don't want my name <laughs> oh, on the I bill. See that. I it was so that. funny. Um, so I definitely love Cardi B's take on the whole thing. But I think boss, again, to bring in another cliche, I think boss 
to me is really this idea of like the captain goes down with the ship. Where does the accountability stop? Um, and so I think the boss is like the ultimate accountability master, definitely in business. But I think also being a boss in the kind of like zeitgeisty way, um, definitely to me is this idea of um, knowing exactly what you want and pursuing it with with um, blinders on, just like being laser focused and and moving towards that goal. So uh, I think lots of different ways to take it, but those are those are kind of two of them. Okay, and then last, last, last question because our time is so far up. But yeah. you've been so interesting to talk to. I feel like this interview yeah. keeps going. Um, my last question is, can you give some specific advice to young people who have a great idea and are thinking about starting a business and they're not exactly sure what to do? Okay, I think the first piece of advice is ask for help. Ask for advice, ask for help, sit, anyone you're speaking to. If you're like having a drink with someone, if you're at a big party and you're just standing next to a complete stranger, ask them what they think. And, and that doesn't mean that you have to follow their advice, but just, collect data, collect information. Like, you know, I'm starting a bedding company. How do you sleep? What do you have on your bed right now? Those kinds of questions. So I think that's really important is just asking lots of questions. Um, and then I think too, really, really understanding and being comfortable with the fact that you might fail. I think that's just like something you cannot not go into something entrepreneurial with. You have to know you are going to fail big, you are going to fail small, and if you're really successful, you're gonna fail a lot, and then you're gonna get better. And I think that if you're not comfortable with that, don't do it. So I think those are my two pieces of advice. That is really good advice <laughs> because when people see the you know distilled down origin story of a really successful person, it glosses right over all those failures. Yeah. Paying attention to them and accepting them and learning and growing is so key. It's so We key. have all been knocked down a million times. Oh my gosh, right? yes. And I think it can be so easy, especially in our Instagram age, to look at someone and just be like, that person has it all figured out. And it, get, like, it gets dark. It gets dark. You know, my business partners and I will sit there at many times in the, in the kind of evolution of our business. We've looked at a bank account that says $25 notice in your account and we've been like, oh my gosh, like, what are we supposed to do now? And it probably doesn't look like that um, to a lot of outsiders, but I think you have to be really comfortable with that in order to pursue something and, and definitely know you're going to have a lot of dark days. Yeah, and there's light. <laughs> there's light. And, yeah. and you don't have to put the dark days on your Instagram. Exactly. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Nell. You've been you. so interesting, and I wish you all the best. Thank and we you. can't wait to see what happens next with Hill House Fun.